生命历历，虚空粉碎也，放心当下。Chan Chronicles, Venerable Master Shen Hua's life and legacy kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples. In this episode, we hear from Reverend Hong Shur about Master Hua's approach to meditation and what it was like to receive his unique form of guidance, which was the result of tried and true centuries-old teachings. If you apply yourself according to this method and single-mindedly investigate who, you can get enlightened.、Hmm. You can be the equivalent of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, the patriarchs, and the matriarchs. And、no difference, because why? The equipment you're starting with is the same. The technique is tried and true. It's it's survived those centuries in China because it works.、Hmm. So do it, you know. And then he would say, "I'm doing it. I'll do it with you." And you always had the feeling that he was one or two or three or four steps ahead of you in your mind. I'm your host, Fabrizio Alberico. Please visit our website, dharmaradio.org, for more information about these podcasts and the people and organizations that make them possible. We are coming to you today from the annex across the street from the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and I'm sitting here with Hung Shur. We're going to talk about Master Hua's approach to meditation. And so, when you first encountered Master Hua back in the 1970s, was it? Yes. What was the What was the scene like in Northern California at the time? For in terms of meditation and Buddhism, what was the draw? Yeah. Well, I was in. San Francisco. I was actually physically. I was in Berkeley as a graduate student at UC Berkeley, studying、uh, Oriental languages. But my former college roommate had already come to Gold Mountain Monastery in the Mission District in San Francisco, where he had met Master Shenhua, and had、uh, already left home, become a, a Buddhist monastic, become a fully ordained bhikshu. So I met Buddhism. Uh, as a, as a academic phenomena among the scholars at UC Berkeley, personally, I had already been three years before in Kyoto, Japan,、uh, investigating the world of Zen in Kyoto. So I had that background of what was the remainder of what was called the Soto School through Eheiji,、uh, which was founded by Dogen、uh, and. Couple of centuries earlier, four centuries earlier, going on down. So,、um, when I got to San Francisco and Gold Mountain Monastery, here was the Chinese Mahayana tradition. The scene in San Francisco was Zen, Japanese Zen. Suzuki Roshi had started the San Francisco Zen Center. There were、um, homegrown、um, individuals. There was Sufi Sam.、Uh, And there was the Dawn Horse Communion, which was a、um, kind of a, a cult-like thing that grew up around a guy named Baba Frijon. And、uh, there were various uh, uh, swamis and yogis, and、uh, of course more mainstream Jewish, Christian, Islamic 
various churches, but those tended to be pretty much ethnic. You had to, you know, had to come through uh, this particular school of Judaism to be part of that or this side. There was also uh, actually the earliest uh, Buddhist institution to put a toehold in San Francisco was the Jodo Shinshu, the Buddhist Churches of America, which is Japanese Pure Land. In 1898, they, or 1893, as a matter of fact, they began the Japanese Buddhist Church in San Francisco. So to that point, there were no Buddhist monastics. There were no monks and nuns ordained in the traditional line from the Buddha. Master Hua, arriving in 1962, and then allowing the conditions to ripen until 1968, taking five American men and women into the traditional Buddhist Sangha, and that was really the very beginning of indigenous uh, Americans becoming Buddhist monks and nuns. So what was the scene like then? It was, if you wanted to, to do Buddhism, mostly people came through books. Um, Zen, then and now, taught Zazen, taught seated meditation. But in terms of finding Buddhism that had roots, that had been around, that had institutions that and forms and texts and practices, um, Master Hua was the real introduction to it then. approach to meditation because you had done meditation prior to that what did you notice what what was different what was the same well my um i encountered it through my college roommate whose brother had been studying at the providence rhode island zen center uh, through i think song san sunim korean zen and in the providence zen center they sat they did Chinese Chan through the Korean tradition. And so my roommate, uh, David, had watched his older brother uh, learn about Korean Zen and uh, had brought it to Michigan where we, he and I met. And so uh, the first day I stepped into my college dormitory, here was my future roommate who I just had met doing uh, seated meditation on the floor. So he and I had been practicing that way. Two years after that, my junior year, I went to Japan and found Zazen. So th- I had had those two exposures prior, and I'd read read texts about it, read the Six Patriarch Sutra and a Chinese translation and stuff like that. But the actual going beyond meditation, which is to say, after you get up, after you uncross your legs, what's going on? That was what Master Hua introduced. In other words, integrating meditation into a lifestyle that supported uh, your practice. Um, I'd like to talk about that a bit, but I'd also like to talk about what he, what was going on inside as you meditated that he did that was different. And what was going on in, uh, in the mind uh, was different from what I think is going on now in America in that um, Master Hua came from a tradition, and his tradition was Chan, which in Japanese became Zen, in Korea became Son, 
same word, all of which came from the Hindu word, the Sanskrit word, dhyana. So the Chinese was doing chan, Chinese chan. And within that, there were subdivisions. So if you were part of the Chinese chan monastery or community, mostly you would choose between whether you were uh, investigating a huato, it's called in Chinese, which is a meditation topic, translates, or you were doing some other practice. And the Huato was Master Hua's school. He was trained through Master Empty Cloud, Master Shuyun, arguably the most famous Chinese Buddhist monk in the last couple centuries. That tradition looked into the meditation topic, Who is Mindful of the Buddha? Nian Fo Shi Shui. As you meditate, you ask yourself, the word that they use was, you investigate. Who's mindful of the Buddha? Who is reciting the Buddha's name? Is another way to translate. Nian Fo Shi Shui. Who's reciting the Buddha's name? Who is mindful of the Buddha? That question is what you investigate. You ask yourself. You look into it. You drill into the topic. Walking, standing, sitting, lying down, even in your dreams, you're saying, who? Who is in there? Who is so afraid that the person ringing the bell has fallen asleep and my knees are going to hurt until the end of the time, you mm-hmm. know? And who's, uh, who's in there afraid that you're going to die on this bench of hunger, you know? Who is that? Who is actually running around like a monkey in a cage, uh, like a monkey in a tree or a squirrel in a cage inside my mind. You actually investigate that topic. And that's how, bit by bit, um, as thoughts rise, as thoughts dissolve, the who remains. And then you have to ask, who's doing the asking? You know, so it's, it's a, it sounds simple and... It is, it's a simple, it's not complicated, it's not intellectual process, but it becomes very sophisticated and subtle as the mind refines, as you sit, as your thoughts actually do slowly tend to, to, uh, to become fewer and fewer as you sit, as the mind grows quiet. And you stay on top of it, and ultimately the goal is, they, the words they use is, you break through. You break through the questioning and you not so much solve the question of who's mindful of the Buddha, you dissolve the questioner and the question itself. And what you're working on, they call it da qi. You're striking, da means to hit, meaning you're drilling on the seventh consciousness, which brings in this deeper analysis of the mind that the Buddhists have used for centuries. That there's a, among the the structures of the mind, kind of the the roads of the map of the mind, there's a road that, that thinking and language goes back and forth between the storehouse consciousness, which is the eighth consciousness, and the intellectual sorting consciousness, which is the sixth consciousness. When you're there asking who, you're, 
hammering, you're knocking on the door of the seventh consciousness. And as you break through that, ultimately by single-minded focus during your meditation, what happens is you get to the real source of words and thought, language itself, and you're working with the deeper processes of the mind. And there's a point where they say you get good news and uh, you wake up. And enlightenment, they say, is right there. That's, that's awakening. So it's, that's the method. Is, you know, and they give it. So when you start meditating, they say, stick to your watho. Just ask it. Hang it between your eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Just keep looking. Keep asking. And, of course, in the process, you, you're stuck in language. You say, well, I know who I am. Who, who's reciting? I am. I'm reciting the Buddhist name. That's just me, you know. Well, great. Who are you? And get back to work, you know. So it's that single-minded practice. And if you say, what did Master Hua teach you about meditation? He would say, sit there and drill into your watho. That's it. That's the only instruction you get. Mm-hmm. And of course, and that was right off the bat. There was right no, no pay attention to your breath, nope. to calm the mind. No, none of that. None of that. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Is and we were, you know, we young American hippies and scholars and students and dropouts, and we uh, liked it because it was real. First of all, here's a real Chan monk teaching us what he does mm-hmm. and how how it was taught in China. And the hours were intense. You'd, you would meditate for two hours in the morning, one hour in the evening, no exceptions. Everybody meditated together three hours a day in the monastery. And then several times during the year, there would be a Chan retreat, a Chan Chi, a seven-day Chan retreat. And you begin at 2.30 in the morning, and you sit around the clock till midnight, hour of sitting, 20 minutes walking hour of sitting, 20 minutes walking, one break for meals, and then one rest hour at 4 p.m. And the rest of the time you're sitting. You know, it's, it's a real confrontation with your, yourself, your fears, your attachments, your, your energy, your optimism and all. And during that, Master Hua would uh, twice a day come down and exhort you with Dharma talk. He would... He would encourage you, cajole you, make you laugh at yourself. He would uh, do surprising things. I remember once in Gold Mountain, uh, we were about into the fourth day, and by the fourth day of sitting nine hours a day, you're at your wit's end. You know, you're nodding more than you're, than you're meditating. You're uh, full of pain because sitting still in your knees takes adjusting, you know, and uh, you're bored out of your skull. And Master Hua would say, okay, uh, I've now a uh, special opportunity for all of you hard meditators. I've invited Madame Lola, who is teaching yoga over here in Bernal Heights, to come in and give you a demonstration of a headstand. <laughs> and so we're like, what? And here comes Madame Lola, who is, she's a yoga teacher, and she's just, you know, full of style and just, right out of her studio and she's standing on her head in the middle of the Chan Hall. You know, we're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be watching. And totally forgetting all their fatigue and totally, you know. And he'd say, thank you, Madam Lola. That was just great. We'll all, you know, those of who have the affinities will learn to, to stand on our heads and we really appreciate it. And by the way, here's your cushion if you'd like to join us, you know. And, hmm. and she would, oh, thank you very much. Bye. Madam Lola would go. And we were like, oh ready to meditate for another day, you know, having mm. just had our our uh, 
our consciousness completely uh, uh, kind of our our meters were reset to zero, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that he would do, and uh, just to to keep us going, to keep us keep it fresh, and to keep it keep the the investigation. Do you think that would have been at all possible without Master Hua around to hold that space for you? I doubt it, because mm-hmm. why he embodied it, and it was so clear that it came from his own experience. He had walked this road before. Um, the problem is that I'm discovering is now when people come to me to say, you know, how do you meditate? And I say, okay, cross your legs in full lotus. We're investigating the hot hole. Mm-hmm. People go, I can't sit. I can't cross my legs. I don't bend like that. And uh, how do you, who's reciting the Buddha's name? Who's the Buddha? Mm-hmm. You know. So what he gave us was completely in the context of Chan Buddhism in its monastic embodiment. Mm-hmm. And we got the real practice of Chinese Chan the way it had been going for thousand plus years. And now it's replanted. It's been transplanted to the West where we we don't have the supporting mechanisms in place yet. Uh, so we have to translate the ling- linguistic side of things. We have to translate the food, you know, the hours, what are the expectations of a teacher and students, etc. And um, the reality is many, many people find it hard to sit on the floor mm-hmm. in half lotus, full lotus, or no lotus. Many people want to sit on chairs. So these are all, you know, the translation of the practice into the culture. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do it? And in America now, uh, with the, at the arrival of mindfulness, which is um, largely through the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Chah and others, doing Vipassana, and also the Goenka tradition from India. Um, this is it's a, a different flavor of Buddhist meditation, and it's been hugely popular. Uh, the, the physical demands are not as great. The approach to the mind is not as great. Clearly, clearly, Master Hua held to us the idea that if you can starting right where you are. You can be, you know, a dropout from a college program in Washington State, and you've just wandered in the monastery, checking it out for the very first time. If you apply yourself according to this method and single-mindedly investigate who, you can get enlightened. Hmm. You can be the equivalent of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, and the patriarchs, and the matriarchs. And no difference, because why? The equipment you're starting with is the same. The technique is tried and true. It's, it's survived those centuries in China because it works. Hmm. So do it. You know, and then he would say, I'm doing it. I'll do it with you. And you always had the feeling that he was one or two or three or four steps ahead of you in your mind. He knew exactly what was going to come up in your mind and, and uh, had faced it himself. So that was, that was the inspiration. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't meditation to feel good. It wasn't meditation as an adjunct to your lifestyle. It was meditation to put an end to suffering. Mm-hmm. This is the path the Buddha walked. The map is right here in front of you. Start walking. Oh.
I came to meditation and yoga through mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, this seems to me like almost the opposite. It's like deliberately stressing yourself to the max in order to to get some kind of a breakthrough of insight. Mm -hmm. It was. It was stressful, and uh, the the things that came up were pain. Mm -hmm. The reality of it was that your knees hurt after the third hour, and you started from zero to going, now you're at 60, zero to 60 in three hours. And if you, I mean, I can speak from my own experience of patient, the, the, the Dharma teaching that comes along with the instructions to sit in full lotus were patience. The key Dharma was patient. You be patient with pain. You be patient with boredom. Patient with the mind just rebelling. You know, I don't want to sit here. And, and all of those things were the flavor of Chan meditation. And if you could, if you could practice patience and wait, the result was you went through what was called the pain gate and you reached the state of stillness, the state of, of ease. And as I began describing this, um, the important thing was that uh, meditation was part of a bigger lifestyle. And meditation was the second step, the way Master Hua taught it, the second of three steps. The first step was looking at who you are as a person. The biggest help, the biggest aid to the way of meditation is character. And he identified that specifically as a lifestyle that is harmless, that is generous, that is true to morality, true to vows, that is honest, and that is sober. So I'm interpreting the five precepts, the mm. traditional five precepts, which in their negative statement are no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lies, and no intoxicants. It's, I rebelled against the no part, but the idea that you cherish life, you cherish material, you cherish relationships, you cherish your integrity, and you cherish wisdom in your own mind, that I respond to. And that was the first step to meditation. Because if you can live in a harmless, generous, faithful way, when you meditate, the mind falls still. Hmm. Whereas if you kill, steal, lust, lie, and drug yourself, when you go to meditate, you're in pain. You're, mm -hmm. You won't. You stand right up because there's just too much, too much shouting, too many rocks, too much rapids, you know. And, and uh, so that was the, meditation was the second step. Then the third step was the wisdom that arose from the meditation. And Master Hua's you say, you know, stressful, it was because the goal was overcoming stress for self and others. Meditation was yet a tool for people who were going to redesign their lives in service to others. This, he, the meditation came from the Bodhisattva path. And the Bodhisattva path said, if you want to do something meaningful, end your suffering, and then teach others to end their suffering. So uh, maybe one reason why you sit still until your legs hurt is because that's real pain, and if you can overcome that, there's pretty much you're ready to help other people overcome their pain because you've mm -hmm. faced your deepest fears. Certainly that's the Buddha's model. He, you know, six years in the forest and then 49 days saying, I'm not going to, not going to leave this area, this tree, until I wake up. 
mm-hmm. and he faced his worst fears. He transformed his desires and his affliction, and the demon, Mara, couldn't upset him, couldn't seduce him, couldn't make him frightened because he'd already seen, he'd already investigated the deepest shadows of his own mind. Mm-hmm. So here's Master Hua saying, yeah, the Buddha did it, let's do it. The Buddha was a human being who sat down. Here you go. Here's how. You know, it wasn't so I feel better on my way to work. I like to think of meditation having these twin pillars of vipassana, clear seeing, and samatha, calm abiding. Is it fair to say that Master Hua emphasized more samatha rather than vipassana, or samatha as a means towards vipassana? There's, um, he would always say, the word dhyana is has two two definitions. One is jing lu, and one is si wei xiu. Jing Lu is shamatha. You calm your mind. Stopping, they would call it. Zhi, the Chinese shorthand calls it zhi, stopping. Stopping, that is. And then there's guan, which is si wei xiu, selecting among your thoughts. That's the vipassana side. Mm. He would say this dhyana has two components to it. Mm -hmm. So dhyana is the word that gave birth to Chan. So there would be lip service to shamatha. Stopping and contemplating, guan, and probably the if you had to trace back the founder of this view was Master Zhi Yi, uh, and Master he was called Great Master Wise One Zhirja. He was before the Tang. He was sixth century, and he wrote the Great Calming and Contemplating. It was his magnum opus about meditation. So, all that is to say, yes, in the Chinese tradition, vipassana and shamatha are given as the definition of, of Chan. When you go to practice it, the one in China that survived and flourished was the stopping, was the shamatha, pretty much. But you're right. The, the vipassana is implied, and Master Hua would say, okay, should you want to go further, here are all these contemplations. Contemplation of impermanence, the contemplation of impurity, the contemplation of loving-kindness, the contemplation of dharmas arising through conditions. And he would say, these are all there, and anyone can investigate them if you want to. Meanwhile, break through the huato, get to see the nature of the mind, and sweep sweep away all dharmas and get rid of all hallmarks of the mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're just these exhortations. So they... In the Chinese Chan, they picked out one and said, this is the best one. The others are there, and that was, that was how it worked. And so for people today who don't have access to Master Hua or, or who might not have access to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery or other resources like the Chan retreats, uh, the city of 10,000 Buddhas, how could someone incorporate some of the teachings of Master Hua into their meditation practice in this modern world, or is there a way to, to do that? Well, we, um, this gives me a great opportunity to promote my meditation handbook that we wrote at uh, myself and a, a layman named Chin He. Uh, we summarized, distilled 
those teachings of Master Hua and others that we have learned uh, since then and put them in a little handbook that's illustrated and got some essential ideas. So that's, that's a, a, a book. We, um, what I experienced teaching at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, teaching meditation every single week for 23 years and sitting ourselves twice, twice a day open to the public, is um, that in the West right now, people seem to want uh, an interim step that the Huato is a pretty steep mountain to climb. If you haven't even, if you have no clue of who the Buddha is, you don't know who is mindful of him. Mm. And so you kind of have to step back a little bit. And so we teach by counting the breath. Sati, what is Satipatthana, kind of, you know, learning to recognize your breathing, becoming mindful of the fact that we are breathing at this moment and valuing that, learning, investigating the breath. That seems to be a good first step. At the same time, we teach uh, stretching exercises, so people who would care to sit in full lotus, work on those muscles that are tight and hold hold back us hold back our ability to, to bend and to, to flex that way. So those are some of the, the intermediate expedient means that we use to get people going. Um, Master Hua's talks on Dharma, the exhortations that he gave during the Chan sessions are published and available at BuddhistTexts.org, B-U-D-D-H-I-S-T-T-E-X-T-S.org, BuddhistTexts.org. Um, look for Chan Dharma Talks. Uh, there's lots of collections of the things that he, he ex- how he exhorted us. Um, it, speaking strictly, you don't need a monastery. You don't need uh, a teacher. You have your own body and mind, but it's really good to sit with other, to sit with friends. Mm-hmm. There's uh, an energy and a strength that comes from having friends uh, support each other, lighting a stick of incense, getting a timer, having somebody hit the bell, and then integrating moving meditation, usually walking, sometimes bowing, as a complement to the sitting. Those are all traditional uh, structures that support meditation. So. Um, monasteries bit by bit are popping up. There's Seattle and, and uh, Vancouver and San Francisco and San Jose and Sacramento and Los Angeles and Calgary and mm, one on the east coast of our in, in Maryland. But, you know, few and far between unless you live on the east coast. So um, if you can't... Uh, if you can't find a monastery to investigate Master Hua's style, certainly locally there's going to be a mindfulness training center somewhere, and that's mm-hmm. a good place to start. Ultimately, it all leads back to the mind. Mm-hmm. And even Chan meditation is an expedient to get you to, to uh, tune in, to get you to listen to yourself and to think things over and to regulate your breath, to tame your body and mind and go back to the source. So... Uh, if you look at Buddha images, mostly they're sitting. Buddhas are there with their legs crossed. Sometimes they're standing, sometimes they're walking, reclining. But by and large, they're sitting. And there's a reason for that. It's because that you can sustain that posture long enough to have the mind settle. And then you poke it with a question. Who? Who's in there? And you discover that there's a, a door in there. There's a door to the mind 
and uh, wisdom waits on the other side of that. Ultimately, like the sixth patriarch, we have this wonderful text that many of us, many monastics, East and West, began with called the Six Patriarchs Dharma Jewel Platform Sutra, the teaching of the Six Patriarch. And, and uh, he's famous for, uh, we say, pulling the rug on all kinds of questions and pretensions about what is meditation and what is Buddhism. And uh, he, uh, in that story, there's a great poetry contest. And the fifth patriarch, Master Hongren, wants to pass on his teaching. He wants to find an, a Dharma heir. And so he advertises that anybody who can produce a poem uh, is, is welcome, and he'll judge and tell you who's really seen his mind. They say, Ming Xin Jian Xing, who's lit up his mind and seen his nature. And so the uh, chief monk, a monk named Shen Xiu, says, What is poetry? I'm the mirror stand bright At all times wipe clean Let no dust alight Everybody goes, wow, great verse, you know. So the fifth patriarch says, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, meanwhile, anybody else, you know? So this uh, young layman who's been back in the pantry pounding rice comes forward and says, well, I can't read or write, but I have a verse. Anybody want to help me write it? So they go, you know, who are you? Come on. He says, no, no, I'll, I'll have a verse. He said, anybody could, right? So they say, okay, what's your verse? He says, the body is no bow tree. Ain't no mirror stand bright. Basically, there's not one thing. Where could dust delight? And so the fifth patriarch clearly sees this is the one and uh, passes on a robe and bowl to him and a Dharma teaching and sends him away to, uh, to begin his career of teaching. So the, this illiterate layman who was a woodcarver, a young guy from the south, uh, was the one who had seen his mind, lit up his mind, seen his nature. So there's, you know, you get to that place where there's nothing at all and then you empty out nothing, and you're back, and you're ready to teach. So, hmm. so that's the goal of Chan. That's the goal of meditation. And Master Hua kept that alive. You could see it and, and, and hear it in him, that meditation was uh, a means to wake up and then get busy teaching. That concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. Many thanks go out to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and Reverend Hung Shur for their hospitality. Our website, once again, dharmaradio.org, has much more for you to click through. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes of Chan Chronicles as soon as they're available. Amitofo. Amitofo.